Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have Ivor Cummins joining us for a part three on the COVID response and narrative, this time with a stronger emphasis on the human struggle and emotions associated with being cognitively and societally isolated. This episode is more of a thinking and emphasizing discussion, while still keeping a firm handle on the technical aspects that people need to hear. It's philosophical, empathetic, principled, and all about emotional connection. This is a side of Ivor that we just don't get to see much. His passion for history, his warrior-like strength of character, and his capacity to emphasize with those that are struggling with being a lone wolf in this fight of honesty versus hysteria. I suspect a lot of people will be able to relate to the struggles we discuss and may well find strength and or acceptance of the situation by being part of this much needed discussion. We chat about how Ivor is coping, where he finds his motivation and strength, how he manages his bias, and the painful reality for many with being seriously ostracized. It's not just the problems though, we also touch on some sound advice on how to navigate this time. We talk about some country COVID specifics and do a big deep dive into the UK winter resurgence slash second wave situation. Did either get it wrong? What data and signals do we need to track? How would Ivor characterize what we are seeing? And his assessment of this current situation, which is critical and should really help people get some perspective. We talk about the UK hospital pressure, the UK variant, the multitude of who pivots and why they are so committed to illogical positions such as the crazy case definition and the dodgy DEFSIR guidance. And lastly, but perhaps most importantly, Ivor speculates on what a cunning government would do to engineer itself out of hysteria and claim victory in the next few months by gaming nature. You're going to want to listen to that. It's the COVID conversation you'd love to have. If only you could find someone on the same wavelength, a deep thinker, and who is intensely researched on both the science and the politics. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging or sharing this Adventation episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, an online self-improvement program like no other letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, let's get philosophical, emotional, honest, and still very technical on the current UK situation with the brilliant and courageous Ivor Cummins. Ivan, my man, welcome back for part three. Hey, thanks a lot, Steve. Oh, it's part three, not part two. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. We spoke in May, late May. Uh, we then got back together in August time. Um, and here we are in January. You you would have thought we, we'd talk about something else by now, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, if we lived in a sane world, maybe we would be. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's funny you say August because I remember myself and doctors in Ireland wrote a letter to the newspaper in August. And we clearly called out in a paragraph and emphasized it that in the winter, there'll most likely be a winter resurgence. SARS-CoV-2 will be the dominant virus. The flu has pretty much been knocked out of the virome. And therefore, there's a danger of badging uh, or misattributing deaths to SARS-CoV-2. So we must focus on excess uh, mortality versus 2018 or prior years to see if what the impact really is. And, and here we are now, and people are saying, oh, you said there'd be no second wave. Uh, and the point is, no Spanish flu 1918 terrorizing second wave, but winter resurgence, absolutely. And here we are. Yeah, I know you were very clear with me on both of those podcasts, and I know you've been consistent with that messaging. So no, I don't think there's, there's a misstep. But um, before we even get into some of the detail, the last time we spoke was, as I say, August. Um, I don't know if you had been on talk radio and starting this kind of like whirlwind of um, notoriety to some degree in regards to COVID. I'm not quite sure when that happened, but I know at least since then until now, uh, your name has become very topical. Topical for the people that want to hear your voice and also um, on the hit list of those that don't. Yeah. How's that ride been for you? Because, you know, you've went from relative anonymity, you know, some people knew you for sure in the circles that I I followed around low carb and, you know, heart health and just general wellness. Uh, you, had, you had a strong voice, um, but that didn't touch mainstream at all. But now it's a different gig. How, talk to me a little bit about that journey. How are you emotionally, mentally, psychologically handling this process? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I've been under no illusions really since April, May, but certainly it heated up in the summer and then with talk radio and I, I got a, a half page in the New York Times after my September uh, video got 1.7 million views. Uh, so I was actually in there, the New York Times. And the thing is, I always say to people, and I've been saying it for some time now, uh, I have primary motivators and they're pretty fundamental. And the first is, I have multiple children, like I have five children, and I'm focused on their future. I, I don't care about dying per se. I don't want to die, but we're all going to die. So that's not my focus. It's the future, a secure world for the next generation. And that's being trashed now, in my opinion. And the second thing is truth and science. I've always been fixated with honesty and science, whatever about bending the truth, you know, for political means, but not to undermine truth in science. And that is being trashed, obviously, terribly. So two of my real core fundamentals have been under attack uh, for nine or 10 months. So I'm driven by a passion for those things. And therefore, I'm not really affected by the abuse. And, you know, the abuse will increase now because the hospitals are under pressure in the winter resurgence that we foretold. And more and more pressure will come on. As you saw, talk radio got their YouTube uh, taken down and it was reinstated a day later. But there's going to be more censorship, more abuse. 
But the point is, you either stand for something or you don't. And this, I think, is an egregious situation. Many have suffered and passed, sadly. That's the virus's fault. The problem is we humans somehow have taken a problem of a nasty virus and made it 10 times worse uh, with lockdown-induced casualties, suffering, death, and with the complete destruction of our fundamental freedoms. Uh, I'm not a massive freedoms libertarian guy, but by God, this has brought it out in me because... Mm-hmm. It's outrageous. I mean, Lord Sumption in the UK has made this clear for many months now. Um, it's unbelievable what's transpiring. And you've got to speak up because if you don't speak up and you quietly go into the woodwork, I mean, how can you live with yourself down the road? Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. And I think that is a motivating driver for many that either have a name or don't or somewhere in between that feel compelled to contribute to hopefully honesty, debate, uh, and exposing the data for all it is. And I know we're working with muddy data, so not all of it is is crystal clear. Um, But touching back on, obviously, your principles are driving your behavior. Um, The fact that people are engaging with you, I think, is, you know, whether you agree to to it um, consciously or not, that's fueling to some degree, your motivation to continue, right? If you were speaking into a black box, I suspect it it wouldn't last as long. But with um, support comes abuse, trolling, uh, debunking videos. I've seen quite a few. (laughs) Um, Debunking Ivor Cummins. It's it's quite interesting. Um, Smearing your name, finding anything to suggest that you are ill-equipped to have an opinion on this matter. Uh, Defamation attempts, generally speaking. I mean, how are you doing emotionally and how are your, how's your family doing? And I don't want to get into, you know, the person, personal stuff too much. I just want to get a sense for the psychological journey you're going through because I think everyone is struggling, especially those that believe they see something that the mainstream aren't. Yeah, it's no, it's a great question. And I'm lucky in a sense because, you know, with close friends who are technologists and managers and senior managers in, in industry, which I was in for 30 years, they've been coming to me for updates. And at the risk of being arrogant, they they know I'm not going to be wrong if I'm emphatic about something. You know, it's like you say, it's complex, but I'm not going to be wrong broadly. And then they will quiz and they will test smart guys and I'll answer all the questions. And then they say, okay, so they know how it is in the world. So I have all that network. Um, I also have the network of arguably the 57,000 doctors and scientists in the Great Barrington Declaration are largely, you know, on my side of the field. Uh, Then Professor John Lee, Professor Michael Levitt, Nobel Prize winner, Professor Beda Stadler, emeritus immunologist. And I could go on and on. I've all interviewed for our new movie. And um, myriad doctors and surgeons and specialists all over the world. And I'm linked into multiple worldwide groups in South Africa, Netherlands, Denmark recently, Ireland, a big group. So in a sense, I don't want to be too arrogant to say I'm not affected, but I've got the comfort of knowing I always stick to the data. I've got the comfort of knowing that the big question is not what will happen in this wave or that wave. The big question is, is lockdown effective and has a reasonable cost benefit? And the answer is no by a factor of 10 to 50. And 
all the specialists and experts I mentioned around the world, we know we have 26 published analyses now that all say the same thing. And for the listener, it's important that you can't be arrogant about any scientific fact because nothing is ever fully proven. But what you can be sure of is, according to Professor Karl Popper, and I've lived by this rule for my technical career, you only need one or two good pieces of um, negative data against a hypothesis to kill it. And we now have 26 published papers and hundreds of negative proofs that the lockdown is not effective. So there's there's no certainty in science, but it's as close to certainty as is possible that our main thesis, our main message that lockdown has a horrific cost-benefit and very little advantage in viral spread, we almost essentially know that that's true. So our main message, we essentially know it's correct, and we know that the mainstream is wrong. So we can argue about patterns and, you know, waves and what will happen and predicting things, you know, even the best will get some things wrong. And the enemies will try and find the one thing you got wrong. But what I said about lockdown science, you know, that's immutable. That's simply the data is in. I just shared there, someone did the latest Swedish data and there's essentially no mortality signal in Sweden and they've been through their whole epidemic. No mortality signal in Sweden. Imagine, right? They had a soft 19, yet 2020 as a year, and the data is not fully in, but it's close enough. 2020 as a year will not even be higher to compensate for the very soft 2019. It's just roughly matching up with other years. I mean, that's just one proof. I mean, if you take another proof, Florida. Florida, the governor, incredibly intelligent man, it appears, brought in professors from Harvard and Professor Levitt, and he decided, okay, I think you're correct. The lockdown and the masks are not really doing anything. And he took them all away in September 26th, I think. In the ensuing four months, Florida, the curve of mortality per million didn't shift an iota, even though he removed everything. And they actually continued to be better than nearly all regions in America that began to rise seasonally. Florida's the winner. It beats California. And California has been locked down and masked to hell and back. So, I mean, there's just another irrefutable negative proof. And you only need one negative proof to kill a hypothesis. People need to understand that. You can have a thousand, you know, supportive associations that say that lockdown is useful. But what we've got is we've got more negative disprovings of lockdown then there are positive. And technically, you only need one negative, and that will beat 50 positives. So, you know, this is fundamental. And I guess because I keep reminding myself of that, I'm impervious to criticism, not out of arrogance, but because I know they're catastrophically wrong and the most important thing of all. I know that. And they are ruining the world, destroying the economies, and causing suffering and death by being wrong about that. So 
no criticism can touch me. And the debunkings that you mentioned, I did a few debunking the debunkers videos and then I gave up because it's literally a waste of my time. <laughs> I'm wasting my time. I mean, what I just described is the fundamental central tenet of scientific method and of Popper's philosophy of problem solving and proof. It's a central pillar and they don't get it. So what can you do with these people? And obviously, people that are challenging you, um, I think mostly it's, you know, the layperson with, you know, with some information, uh, but you will get some that have credentials of some nature, scientific or medical. Um, I've seen a couple of those where people have gone to town with like, you know, 50, 50 tweet, tweets, you yeah. know, trying to debunk everything you've said. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, I know there was a guy with an afro. Um, that's kind of keen on you. He's got a bit of a kind of sarcastic tone to him. Uh, and there was a, a medical doctor that went, went at you quite hard. <laughs> um, and I, and I read, I read those pieces and I thought, do you know what, that for the person that wants that to be true, they sound kind of compelling. Um, yes. So how, how do you help? How do you help people? Because as I, as I say, I think a lot of the pushback to you and I and others, for the most part, they're the average, everyday person who feels um, we're being dangerous. Um, we are misleading. We're provoking you know, misinformation to just spill across the world. Uh, we're not being conscientious. We're not uh, taking responsibility for the situation we're in. And in some way, shape or form, they allude to us, you know, inciting bad behaviors whether they be just living your life or deliberately trying to cause, um, you know, a nuisance in the world. So I struggle with the layperson who's got some information and that information is counter the information that you and I are sharing. And most of it comes from official data. But how, how do you ever, you know, does this ever feel like a bit too much? Like, because it is incessant, right? I, I guess you've, you've got a thick skin, but when is enough enough? When do you feel actually, do you know what? This is this is too much, right? And it's coming from every angle. Well, yeah, no, that's true. And it is a challenge with the layperson. I mean, there's no cure for ignorance. And of course, it's easy to fool the ignorant. And I don't mean that in a really nasty way. But I mean, the people who are being fooled by those debunkings uh, are ignorant and, and not meaning that in a nasty way. They do not have the logical, the scientific uh, and the expert background to be able to see through the, you know, the kind of clever lies, the sophistry. I love that word, sophistry. You know, sophistication. I found out a few years ago, we think sophistication is great. He's sophisticated. But that comes from sophistry. And sophistry are arguments that are very clever and beguiling, but fundamentally incorrect. So we have a mass of sophistry. And, and that's a problem. All I can do there is do rebuttals, time permitting, uh, and also keep my technical information as simple as possible so the ordinary person gets it and has some immunity, if you pardon the pawn, <laughs> to this devious, you know, mendacious trash that we see out there. Um, in terms of thick skin, you know, I, I gave the example to, and in terms of my family, my wife is an engineer as well, first class honors, and she's been on a journey of 20 years where I've fought some of the most complex problems you can imagine in a corporate setting. 
And she's had to live them where I've worked 80, 90 hours a week and been responsible worldwide for the outcome and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of losses in the balance. So she she knows and she understands that we're correct on the lockdown kind of nonsense. And she also has a super focus on the future of the children. Uh, she she was a large driver of the large family, to be quite honest. Um, so we're all sorted. And all my friends and my daughters in college, uh, they know. They know we're correct. So that gives you a lot of strength. And the people criticizing, who are they? Well, you know they're wrong, right? Without being arrogant, but you know they're fundamentally wrong, as I described. So what effect can it have? And I gave the example, funny enough, Steve, I said, well, look, we're so soft nowadays. We're literally just blamange. We have no capability of dealing with risk, of mortality. You know, we have just become so soft over the last 30 years, the safest society. But some people need to stay uh, in line with our evolutionary heritage. Look what humanity has come through over half a million years. I mean, we got to have some respect for our heritage. And I give an example of, say, the French resistance during the war. I'm, I'm a World War II buff. I've watched thousands of hours of documentaries. Um, and think of the French resistance a year into their horror. I mean, they get caught and tortured and killed. How do they keep going for several years in, in an almost hopeless situation? They typify what humanity really should be. I mean, let's be honest, huge respect for them. But what's happened to us? Now, a few months of being abused by, by, I don't know, people that are everything from ignorant through to, to be quite honest, quite evil. Uh, I'm sure a lot of them who are pushing on this do know deep down that it's, it's bad science. You know, how can you let yourself be affected by that kind of crap? You know, you're just, you're making a decision to roll over and show no leadership anymore, you know? And then what do you do in 10 years looking back? You know, I copped out. I decided I didn't want to be a leader. Oh, I, I can't I think, I think the, re the reason I, the reason I, I mentioned this isn't, isn't just about you, Ivan. It's definitely not a selfish one about me, albeit I'm going through my own uh, 48 hours worth of... Uh, troubles at the moment but i'm sure they'll pass um it's more about the audience that we speak to um it's a lonely place um when you have a an opinion or an insight that is counter mainstream thoughts mm. because obviously it is um if 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 your spouse doesn't agree with you that can be very challenging if you're most immediate family don't agree with you. That can be challenging. If your friends don't agree with you, that could be challenging. And I see so much isolation, obviously partly brought on through the decisions we're making to self-isolate individuals and lockdowns and so forth. But I'm seeing isolation socially and ideologically. Like people are alone in an island without anyone to turn to and speak to. And I think that's where they get some comfort from you, me, others, that just give them some solace. Like, oh, there's, there's a voice that makes sense to me. The problem is you're not my friend. You're not in my life. I can't back and forth with you. And when I get attacked left and right, you know, days worth of abuse, I've got no one to, to be my support network. Uh, and you've just described the massive support network you've got, both your family, your colleagues, and, you know, this wider collection of individuals that have a similar uh, 
way of looking at the data as you do. So that's the reason I'm doubling down on this question. And I know it's the non-scientific part of this discussion, but we have very likely another year of this, probably. Um, you know, autumn's going to be here before we know it again. And, and, and then what, right? And are people going to have the energy, like you, like me, to sustain both living in a world which feels like lunacy and feeling like you must be the loon, the lunatic because everyone else thinks differently. Um, and just some thoughts there. Like, do you, just chime off anything that kind of makes sense to you as to you as you're thinking about that kind of loneliness and isolation uh, as, it, as as regards to seeing the world differently to the others. Yeah, no, it's an important point, especially now because of this process of attrition. But uh, I think people have to think as well, you know, back to my analogy, you know, there are collaborators too, and unwitting or otherwise, a huge percentage of people have become collaborators of sorts. And that makes it really tough for the resistance, even if the resistance are correct and just, like like in World War II. Um, but you just need to, and it's very hard, I agree for some people, you need to have this this, I don't know, principle, that the principle towers over everything you describe, no matter how tough what you described is. And I know it is tough. I am deluged with messages all over the world from professionals, professors, down to lay people thanking me for keeping their sanity. And that's great. Uh, But I also know that I can be of some help to them, but it's very hard for people to feel it themselves unless they're in the battle. When you're in the battle, you're engaged. And how do I articulate this? People need to have faith that fighting for the right thing and for justice is, is a prize and a virtue beyond anything we mentioned. Even, dare I say it, you know, the respect of friends and relations. Now, I'm lucky because of what you said, of what I told you. Um, if I didn't, I, I admit, oh, that would be harder if close people were rejecting you. That would be super tough because I will, and not to be callous, I will dismiss relations even and friends because this is a point of principle and it is an enormously important principle. So I will dismiss friends, but but luckily I have a hardcore bunch of the smartest guys and gals in the room who have stayed with me 100%. Now, I will admit 70 or 80% of my friends are anywhere from, oh, but, 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 but they said on the news last night, and oh, are you sure? Um, right through to saying you can't be right. The experts can't all be wrong. So I've lost a lot there but I'm willing to sacrifice it because of principle. I mean, people nowadays, I don't know what's gone wrong in the last 30 years. Principle has, people have their head in Netflix and phones. They've forgotten what's truly valuable in life. You know, they've forgotten community, you know, the future for the next generation, you know, grin and bear it, stiff upper lip, you know, be a man, be a woman. All of that seems to have just dissipated. But remember, I have an advantage too, and it just occurred to me to your question, Steve, anything that comes to mind. My watching of thousands of hours of World War II documentaries, I think now 
that I think about it has given me a huge advantage because I've lived through the reality of only a few generations ago. And I've almost vicariously, indirectly, you know, lived through that. And I can't claim the bravery of those great men and women in their millions who, who gave the ultimate price, right? True. But I have lived through what they went through. And I'm a very kind of emotionally and philosophically, I don't know, active guy, shall we say. So I'm able to put myself in scenarios. I have huge empathy uh, ability. And I was a manager, people manager, 15 years. And and I did very well at it, probably because of that. But I'm able to watch all that and think and ponder and live it. So in a sense, it's almost like I've been through that. And anyone who's been through that, even virtually in a sense, has got enormous, enormous reserves psychologically, you know? And yeah, I, mm. I understand that. I understand that. I think um, I can relate to that. The, the more you're aware of history and struggles and struggles that led to successes eventually, mm. Knowing that there is sometimes a long game you have to play, um, but you know truth and goodness for the most part prevails. Um, but you need to stay stay at it. Um, I think that's important, and I agree. I think there is a an exchange occurring right now where um, people are willingly or unwillingly, but unconsciously giving up fu- their future for the immediate, as you say, for the Netflix, for the comforts, for. Um, a comforted ego, whatever it takes just to feel to feel good in the moment seems to be the priority of our culture today. And there seems to be uh, an increasing uh, resistance to suffering, to struggle, um, and to paying it forward to yourself and others. It's like the here and now, the immediate. And I think that we're in a, we're in a loop uh, and it's expressed through safetyism. It's expressed through, you know, wokeness. It's expressed through, an unwillingness to accept that there are, you know, with death come no, so with life comes death. Like they're, they're, it's like as if we're we're godlike or we, we want immortality, <laughs> and we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be attacked. We don't want to have a discussion. We don't want to have debate. We don't want our egos to be challenged. We don't want to do any hard work. We just accept that someone else is going to do all the thinking for us. But that sounds a bit nanny state. That sounds a bit CCP to me, <laughs> and yet. It's being embraced. I'm, I'm just shocked that what feels like a communist-like authoritarian style of managing our people, granted in a state of emergency, quote-unquote, um, it's just being embraced. And I, I don't see an exit from that. Do you see an exit from you know the direction of travel from a kind of political standpoint globally at the moment? Oh, well, yeah, good points. The political... Um escape is problematic because they've wreaked such destruction with their incorrect uh, strategy and policies that now, even if they woke up with a dawning realization, oh, we screwed up because we did all that damage to people, you know, suffering, death, economic destruction, we did all that. Let's say they began to realize that didn't really help anything and it was an enormous cost. Can you imagine the normal human drive for them to cover that up? It's going to be irresistible. 
And I think that's where a lot of them are trapped. Yes, there's bad people who want to drive this for bad reasons, very influential, bad organizations for profit and control. There's all of that. But the people who I think Winston Churchill referred to useful idiots who actually got caught up in it and deployed policies thinking it was good, if they worked out that actually this is this has all been incorrect, even though they'd like to start fixing it, they'd say, I can't fix this because I'm culpable of enormity, of enormous damage. So I, I think that we have that added problem, I'll acknowledge it, that uh, it's too big to fail. There's an element of this that is too big to fail. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of people who are not just downright evil, uh, but the people who did it thinking it was the right thing and are beginning to wake up. Any of those people, too big to fail. And unfortunately, that makes a further hurdle to return to scientific sanity. It's a tricky one, but but still focusing on the data, focusing on the published science, focusing on the enormous number of Professor Karl Popper black swans that disprove lockdown effectiveness. All we can do is keep doing that because... Appealing to the emotion, Steve, has been said to me, well, you're appealing with logic and science, but now people are emotionally caught up and you need to appeal to their emotion. Well, we tried that too. We try to emphasize the pain and suffering that lockdown causes to, to tap into that emotional thing that the authorities have abused and, and uh, leveraged for nine months now. Um, and you can try and do that, but it's hard to get in because the people are essentially psychos now, propagandized. And we've seen this in many studies in the past, and we saw it in 1930s Germany. Once you've propagandized people for long enough, they actually, the cognitive dissonance and the lack of ability to stand back and reassess becomes profound. And it's hard to break through that veneer. Um. It's a tricky question, but but back to the original point, we have no choice but to continue to do our best to break through this uh, propagandized populace uh, because they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction and way of life and culture and society. They're, they really are sowing the seeds of their own destruction. And in fairness to them, they don't know that. If they knew that, they could pluck up some some courage. And dare I say it, if I use the C word, Sadly, the C word is involved here, and I hate to say it, but cowardice, because a lot of people do know that it stinks, and they do know and have seen the mortality and know it's not outside the envelope of a severe flu, and it's worse for aged and immunocompromised, but it's less bad than the flu for pregnant women and younger people, where all the qualities are, the quality-adjusted life years. So many people, I think, know it stinks, but they won't speak up because of what you described, because they won't accept a backlash. They won't go there. They just keep on rolling and say, look, it'll go away. A vaccine will come. It'll go away. Um, it'll pass, and then I'll be fine. But the problem is... I think we've been saying that since since March, right? Oh, it's only it's only a lockdown. It's only four, five, six weeks and, you know, then it'll be done. A few weeks we, to flatten we keep the curve. That. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There just seems to be this, well, you know, the vaccine, right? We'll get the vaccine, job done. Well, we know that's not the case. We, we know in our hearts that's not the case. And I think most people know that we're going to enter into a schedule of vaccination. 
Matt Hancock only said it a couple of days ago. Vaccines are here to stay. I suspect we're going to need to revaccinate people every six to 12 months were his words. His yeah. words. Now, I'm not saying he's particularly informed, but I think he, he acknowledges that's what they want and that's what's going to happen. And that therefore means that the vaccine is not an escape. It's not an escape door. No. But people think, well, that will be it. Like, we'll do that. You stop resisting, Steve. You just be a good boy. Listen to what they're saying. Don't go out. Wear your mask. Get your vaccine. Job done. We'll be back to normal by summer. I, I love their optimism. I believe it's incredibly naive. And maybe I'm being a little bit despondent today, but I, I, I sense that there is, unless there's a catastrophe or a scandal, something that breaks, that mm. really shows blood on the hands or um, uh, a knowing avoidance of truth by our leaders, whether it be about PCR, whether it be about lockdown ineffectiveness, whether it be about vaccine effectiveness, there needs to be some acknowledgement, some scandal that puts, whether it be our UK leadership or global leadership into question. Outside of that, I'm, I, I just see this perpetuating. There will be, you know, um, health passports, vaccination schedules for the for adults every single year for this and other things, and a, a continuing shrinking of your freedom and inalienable rights as a means in which to somehow protect us from this invisible threat. That worries me. But do you see? Do you see that the same way? Do you feel it? You know, you are you are supporting through your work for that moment to come, that inescapable truth prevails, big bang, scandal, catastrophe, something? Or do you think, do you see it differently? Do you see that just chipping away at this eventually changes the the, the mindset of our public? Who? Well, yeah, I've thought about this a lot. So I, I don't think just chipping away and and, you know, meddling with this is, is going to get there. Uh, but I think we're doing a lot more than that with these worldwide organizations. We're taking flack, we're taking risk, we're getting abused. So we're not just chipping away. We're doing as much as we can uh, to convert hearts and minds, to bring people back to sanity. But I said many, many months ago, I had my darkest day, Steve. I can tell you my darkest day. And I, I don't, did I tell you this before? Not sure if you did. Go on, go for it. I, I've had my darkest day. And the darkest day was in the summer, in early July. And I had been banking on scientific reality, as in the ICU in Northern Europe and, and mortality would disappear in the summer. And I said, there's no way they're going to bridge four months and keep this absurd, you know, psychosis going. Four months of summer we're going to have people realize, okay, it was a seasonal virus. It was very nasty. And now it's passed and it might come back in the winter. And I guess we should increase our hospital capacity in case it does, but it's obviously a seasonal flu-like illness of significant severity. So I was kind of banking on that. And then they brought in mandatory masks. And that was my darkest day. Not, not because of anti-masking. I knew the science for masks was actually, complete dog shit. And I knew that from having looked it up because masks have been threatened for weeks. So I knew from looking at 40 years of science that that was a slam dunk. The masks aren't going to do jack. Uh, but then they brought in mandatory masks in the middle of the summer at the nadir when nothing was happening. 
And I realized then, oh my God, there is some kind of elemental evil <laughs> behind this. No <laughs> conspiracy theory. I'm talking about deductive reasoning. To bring in mandatory masks in the middle of the summer when the seasonal viral triggering was over until next winter um, is not stupidity. It cannot be. I, I, I made the case at the time to people. I said, no one is that stupid. It's just impossible. Therefore, this is intentional. And the intention is to keep the fear alive, to bridge and get to the winter where we'd have a resurgence of SARS-CoV-2 and you get some deaths, ICU, hospital loading back again. And then you could continue the carousel. So I realized then my corporate political um, expertise and everything else, I realized, my God, they're bringing this in to bridge to the winter. And that means we're in for trouble. So that was my darkest day. And the way I got out of it, it was a very dark day. And the next day I realized I had to do something, a psychological exercise. And I'd been familiar before about this psychological exercise. And what you do is you visualize a place where you are successful. So it's known from studies that if a violin player visualizes themselves on the biggest stage on earth playing the violin, they might be three times as likely to actually get there. And it's not because of the power of positive thinking. It's that the vision sustains you day to day because the vision exists and it makes you practice when otherwise you might have said, I'll oh, screw it, I'll do it tomorrow. So there's a real mechanism. So I realized I need to sit down on my deck in the middle of the summer and put myself in the place that you describe where this anti-scientific horror succeeds, where people are like pin cushions because there's now a passport and they want to fill it up with stamps. You know what I mean? Like a stamp book. Mm -hmm. So every bloody disease that doesn't benefit much from, from medication will end up going on the, on the little book. And, and, and all that crap and, and the controls and the loss of freedoms. And I said, I've got to put myself in that place, project myself into that place and come to terms with it. And I essentially did. And then I came back from that place to my deck. And I said, okay, I, I accept that possibility. But like a true warrior, I accept the possibility of loss, of losing the war, and it will not undermine my efforts to prevent that happening on behalf of the generations. So do you know what I mean? I put myself there and came to terms with it. And that was very important because now you can come back and properly fight for justice and truth and science, having already accepted that it may be lost, but not having that sap your resolve. And I think many people in, in very difficult, you know, obviously war situations, it's a similar thought process, even if it's not explicit and they don't do what I knowingly did. They accept that they could lose, but it doesn't matter because of the principle. Mm. Because you know what? You, you spoke... You spoke to me there, man. You did. Because we we have gone through a similar thing, probably the middle, it's probably about the same kind of time, middle part of last year, the wife was in bits, just going, oh, you know, just just fatigued, emotionally and psychologically mm. fatigued. And so was I. And I kind of, I just pulled it back and I said, look, you know, we have to get to a place of acceptance, acceptance of what this train wreck could look like. Because one, and I said, this is for your own sanity, when those things happen, we'll be less reactive in the moment. 
because I, I'm seeing that so much. You know, there's there's a conference. They say we're going to do this now, and and people just freak out. I'm like, well, you knew this was coming, right? Like you read you read the tea leaves. You, you saw the direction of travel this plan was going in. That was rather inevitable. You didn't like it because you hadn't prepared for it to happen. It was speculated in your mind, but you you thought, no, 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 they wouldn't they wouldn't go there, and then they go there, and it just crushes you again. So we kind of got to the place of going, well, let's accept worst case. Let's accept that this is an outside of a scandal or catastrophe going to perpetuate. And that kind of calmed us down a bit. But the, the, the bit that I think is missing in that exercise for me and others is, okay, I, I'll find a way to accept something I really don't want. But how do I then continue to fight, fight for it even though I'm – I've got my foot in both camps. <laughs> I've got my foot in the camp of I'm gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna work this out. I'm gonna succeed, and then I have a foot in a in in the camp of look if your own mental health, your own mental well being, you need to stop fighting every minute of every day because it's draining and it's taken away from your experience of life. Do you understand that kind of oh, the challenge? That that's a good point. I didn't fully address. Yeah, that for. Okay, so I can do it, but in fairness, and again, not being arrogant, okay, I can do it, but I, I understand that many people, it's not practical, it's not in their makeup. And and sadly, that's that's the way it is, that some people may make the psychological decision that I, even accepting the worst case and coming to terms and trying to, to fight valiantly regardless, uh, I, I can't sustain this. I can't sustain this fight. And and the people who truly can't, they mean the best, um, but I would absolutely forgive them because everyone has a limit and uh, people have different kinds of limits. And this one is one of the toughest things you can do, rejected by friends and family, um, knowing you're correct and knowing you are upstanding, but still feeling the pain of the rejection, the abuse. These are heady things. And I'm not sure if there's any extra easy way out of them. It comes down to your personal makeup. And we just need to hope and pray there are enough people who are who are made for this kind of thing uh, mm. to keep this going. And enough people converted to create more of a groundswell. Um, there's no easy answers. I, I mean, in 1916, to the eternal shame of the Irish people, and I will say this, and it sounds judgmental, the people in 1916 went out and they fought an impossible rising with most of the Irish not supporting them. Most of the Irish back then said, look, we're living under rule, but listen, it's grand. <laughs> and they said that these people are causing trouble and they'll get us all in trouble. But the 1916 rising people, which ironically, can you imagine the irony, Steve? They are celebrated, their bravery by all the politicians who are now literally destroying our future. They, they have the, 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 the hypocrisy to still celebrate those people. But those people went out and, and fought an impossible war. Obviously, the British Army came in with naval guns and overwhelming force and caught them all. But what happened was they were all put in Kilmainham jail or whatever in Dublin Castle. And a few days later, uh, they were mostly hanged and shot. And that had an interesting effect because people then began in the public to say, hold on a minute, you know, they just hanged them and shot them. 
and they could have locked them up. They could have beaten them up a little. They didn't really kill many people or achieve anything, you know, rifles against cannon. But they've just gone and shot them all like dogs. And that began to change things in Ireland. But it's just an example that they were a very small percentage who had principles. And we come back to that word again, that it was beyond the abuse they got from the other Irish people who were telling them they were dangerous and they were putting us all at risk by fighting against the inevitable rule of another country. Um, but no, they went ahead. And um, people have forgotten that. So they go out and they celebrate these people and, and they acknowledge their leadership and their sacrifice, and they celebrate them. And the people who celebrate them are actually collaborators themselves. Now, many of them don't realize it. Okay, you can forgive some of that. But as I say, there's some of them know that this stinks, but they just want to turn a blind eye and just say it'll blow over. And the problem is it won't, because I used to have the analogy, if you throw little scraps of meat to a ravenous tiger, Okay, you don't have endless meat. You know, you know where it's going, the boiling frog of that scenario. Yeah. Um, you have to take it on. You know what I mean? It's tough, it's hard, but you have to take it on because you know where it's going. I agree. No, I think that's that's well said. Um, I didn't think this would be uh, as emotional and philosophical as I'm making it. <laughs> uh, but I really appreciate your thoughtful response. This is probably not the kind of questions that, you know, people expect from you, but it's good to see that you're a thinker, an emotional thinker as well, and and empathetic to, you know, the struggles people are going through. You know, well, I hear the word cognitive dis dissonance a lot, and I use it quite a lot. But I have to accept that I too have a bias. How do you, how do you, check your bias because you have you have an ego too right we all do we yeah all want to self-protect um we will fight your your ideals of fighting are to protect something right and part of that whether you like to admit it or not is your ego how are you maintaining integrity to continue to follow the science and engage with scientific information that goes against what you would like to see. And maybe here's an example. This uh, resurgence across the globe in the UK, in Sweden, in various parts of uh, Europe is perhaps more meaningful than you would have anticipated. Does that force you to double down to try and find a way to explain it? Do you get a moment of realization to say, maybe I thought this was going to be more mild than it actually is? I how how are you keeping yourself in check to make sure that honesty, integrity, and truth is driving you, not your bias? God, God. I mean, this is like every shot you're firing is a winner. These are great questions. It's almost like we planned this to make it the <laughs> highest value conversation possible, but I assure the listeners we didn't. And I wasn't, I thought we were going to talk all about like technical stuff, to be honest. So to answer that question, it's huge, that question. So basically, the fundamental thing you must do as a problem solver, especially if you're going to be directing people in a way that could be incorrect, like anything could be, and you could make things worse, uh, you've always got to challenge yourself. So you go and gather data for your beliefs, 
uh, to support a hypothesis. Everyone has to build a hypothesis if you're going to have an opinion. And then when you're kind of happy enough with it, you got to switch focus. And you got to start mining the data to find something that says you're wrong. You have to. All those idiots who get caught out, they're not doing that. They gather more and more data that supports, and they subtly, subconsciously, don't bother reading the paper or the publication that conflicts with them because they're pretty happy they're right and they don't really want to dig there. Uh, I dig there. I dig there like a paranoid. I've woken up nearly every night since this started um, at night, maybe go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, and I go back to sleep. But for a minute or two, you know, there's stuff flying through my head. Am I wrong? Always the same. Am I wrong? Sometimes I wake up bolt upright with a small piece of data that I suddenly realize might say I'm wrong on some aspect or small aspect of this. And I, I literally wake up and your brain does work at night. I, I know it from going through massive technical problems. I personally led huge pressure. You'd wake up at night with a sudden dawning realization. There's a possibility I'm wrong on X or Y. And you'll remember because of that report, I missed that. That could have evidence to say I'm wrong. So what you do is, if it's a bad one, you get up, you go downstairs, you turn on the computer, and you spend an hour or two checking it out. And if it's a smallish one, you say, that's the first thing I'll do tomorrow. But what I'm getting to is, you have to be paranoid that you're wrong. And you can never be assured that you're right. So that's the way I do it, and, and many people I know do it. It doesn't mean you'll always be right because you will sometimes miss something and to your horror realize you are wrong. But all you can do is your best. And a senior leader in the corporate I was in who was enormously respected, I worked for him once for a year or two. And he said to me, Ivor, because of your nature and your particular talents, you're going to be right on technical things that affect the business hugely at 95% plus of the time. He said, you, you know, we've talked. That's a fact. But you're going to fear sometimes standing up if everyone else thinks it's otherwise. He said, stand up, because that's leadership. And for the small number of times you may be wrong, bite it, put it down to experience, because we need leadership in this business, in this hmm. billion-dollar business. Now, he was talking about, obviously, not people's lives, that ups the ante. But the principle remains, you must go with what the data is saying. And if it's unpalatable, and even at a small risk, it's incorrect, you must pursue it if it's important. And by God, this is important. So that's that's how I manage this. I'm always looking for contradictory evidence. And I'll give an example now, to be honest. So South Africa has a significant rise in mortality per million, and it's out of season. And no one's come after me yet about it. But I noticed it and I said, now that's something that conflicts with my seasonal. But what I do then is I say, okay, the seasonality is enormous, but here's an exception that proves the rule. So I'm going to look into that because it may expose a flaw in my reasoning. It won't be an important one. It doesn't change the bottom line of lockdown effectiveness, but it's still something that may show I'm incorrect on some detail. So now that's on my mind. You see what I mean? That's on mm -hmm. my mind, not because I think it proves me right. 
that's worthless garbage. It's the things that may prove you wrong on any aspect you must pursue. So, you know, this thing about second waves and is it more serious? Well, I can only tell the truth. I did a mortality curve for Spain in this winter resurgence. And it's in my September 8 video. And I drew what may be the curve and I modeled it on 2017. So I said, look, I can't tell what the mortality will be in the seasonal resurgence, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll grab 2017 for Spain, bring it across to 2021 and say, it could very easily be like that. Okay. It turns out, Steve, that it's half or less than half of that is the reality. So I over uh, predicted the severity of this seasonal winter resurgence for Spain, which was my test case. Uh, for the UK, I said it may be two deaths per million looking at Spain by December. And the mortality curves from ONS, don't mind the, um, the COVID deaths, they're at eight per million, but that's complete junk because they've completely uh, deviated away from the real deaths per million. So back during the epidemic, the real deaths per million excess roughly matched the COVID deaths. But now they're massively out of whack. So the real deaths per million is two per million people per day, which is exactly what I predicted. And the COVID deaths per million are eight per million. But we know that's false data. Only the excess mortality is real data in a seasonal resurgence. So it's just another example that I'm not saying I'm right on everything, but they're the things that people would accuse you of being wrong on. But the reality is, no arrogance, I'm not wrong. And I shouldn't even have been predicting deaths per million this winter resurgence, because that's arrogant to even predict them. I should have stayed out of predictions and stuck with lockdown is ineffective. Masks are ineffective. Um, why did I get involved in predictions? I guess I wanted to reassure people that the best science and the best prediction based on the data and the history of virology, epidemiology, and immunology. The best prediction is something like this, to reassure them. But I ran the risk, of course, of giving my enemies, who are venal and mendacious, of giving them some ammo. And yes, they've tried to use the ammo, but it's quite laughable. No one can predict the future, but you can take a good shot. And as it happens, my shots were very on target. I don't want to take credit for that. I was lucky maybe because I shouldn't really have done predictive stuff, but thankfully it turned out just about bang on. So that's I mean, a long-winded answer. His, Sorry, Steve. Here's another, another example, right? So the UK excess mortality, you say it fits broadly in line with within the envelope of what's expected. You know, I, I track the data for England predominantly, but also for England and Wales. And I can say, you know, unequivocally, on a five-year average, we are seeing excess mortality. Yeah. And the numbers are higher than I would have anticipated because I guess I had a purist view of the future, which would be we'd be able to, in a, in a real-world scenario, understand the impact of a winter resurgence of a virus that's, all, that's passed through the population. So I had kind of assumed that, you know, we can we can look at other data, respiratory um, illness deaths, 
influenza pneumonia cause deaths. Look at that. Say, okay, proportion from a proportion standpoint, maybe some of that will now the deck chairs will move over to uh, to to um, this uh, this virus, SARS-CoV-2. Okay, it's going to look a little bit like this. What I had omitted in that thinking was, but what would the impact of maintaining lockdown, hysteria, um, panic, um, mm. really an unaccessible un- healthcare service for much of this year? Uh, people don't want to really accept that, but that is the reality. We have a burgeoning backlog of about 8 million plus people uh, waiting some form of elective surgery. People are avoiding hospitals. And we obviously now have this extra pressure that I would like to speak to in a minute, but the extra pressure that is causing some inaccess uh, of the healthcare. And then on top of that, you've got anxiety or that kind of thing. So I had not anticipated a, a weakening, declining population, as well as uh, access issues being so prevalent. And as a result, I think my my estimations were off principally because of that. Now, that's me trying to you know, comfort my bias and say, this ain't this ain't a virus, this is other stuff. And I, that makes me uncomfortable. Because when I look at the data, I feel maybe a little bit more um, cornered in, going, ah, this isn't what I anticipated. Where am I wrong? So part of me goes, okay, maybe, maybe this virus is more virulent than I'd anticipated. Maybe herd immunity wasn't nearly as far, far reached as I had assumed. And what we're seeing is those unexposed people getting exposed. And that vir- the virulence is still as high in March. I ask those questions. I return back to sanity afterwards, but I ask them because they're important questions, because the numbers are relatively high. So talk to me a little bit about that. I, I, do you have any squeaky bum moments? Have you felt uncomfortable about this winter in the UK, specifically the UK? I know you live in, in, in Ireland and the numbers are much less, but if you kind of take the whole UK numbers... How do you characterize what's going on right now from a public health perspective? Oh, well, yeah, squeaky bum. I, I basically, my office chair is a commode <laughs> <laughs> because obviously I'm massively exposed here to abuse as we described. So the reason I'm okay with it is, of course, I always said to my wife and others, nothing is impossible in science or in, in reality. I mean, anything can happen. So I agonized for months about the seasonal resurgence. And I said, okay, the season cut that Gompertz hard. So it's hard to say how big the seasonal resurgence will be. And knowing that the seasonal change was part of the collapse of impact back in April, May, which I knew before nearly anyone else, I also knew that, well, what's left in the population for this virus? And I had to try and think, well, is the first epidemic wave three quarters of the impact? Is it possible it could be half for Ireland and we're going to get another similar winter resurgence that matches the original uh, April thing? And I said, it's possible. But what I did is I modeled on what was happening in Spain to try and better guess what the winter resurgence would be in mortality. I triangulated. That's another trick. If you can't for sure tell based on antibody assays and and, and that, you, you know, like your question, you can't tell for sure. You know that the figures are going to include a whole pile of lockdown-induced deaths that's going to make things even more confusing. But how can you do your best, um, best shot at it? 
So I triangulated with other countries that had big waves that were experiencing second resurgences earlier, like Spain. And I just tried to triangulate it all and take my best shot. And that was the Spanish description, which happily was, I, I was more than double the actual real world. Uh, so it was pretty good. Um, but it's very hard to know. And so what you got to do is you got to watch the all-cause mortality like a hawk, the COVID deaths in England and the hospital loading Sad as it is, they're not the metric. And we said this in August, it's all cause mortality excess. And looking at, at the ONS and the material you've put out, which is fantastic, and Joel Smalley as well, yes, they are higher. But then again, I would throw back to the detractors. We just had a really severe virus that caused a bigger spike in mortality in its in its epidemic phase in Europe uh, than would ever be seen normally. Now, it doesn't mean it's Spanish flu. It's not. It's probably around 200 times less impact than Spanish flu. But it is big. We knew it was big. We knew it was seasonally clipped. So, of course, it could be a relatively nasty winter. And that's why we said what we said and why I got double the figures uh, for Spain. Uh, so, but back to your question, yeah, what do you do when it turns out to be quite severe? Well, I flagged that it could be quite severe and, um, and it is, and I'd more worry, is something completely illogical going to happen? For instance, given the amount of community immunity gained and Neil Ferguson yesterday himself said that there's so much extra community immunity being gained that this thing, along with a bit of vaccine action, but you can forget about that comment, that this thing in the next few months into 2021 will, will largely will, will, will have herd immunity. So even he's saying it now in a volt fast. So the only thing I'd worry about is if something that doesn't make any scientific sense happens. For instance, if we get a peak in the UK or Ireland, that's similar or more than the April. Um, and then you'd have to acknowledge, well, whoa, that's a big second peak. And, and that has kind of happened in Italy and Belgium. So I broke out 25 European countries a few days ago in a, in a video. And there's around four with a, with a split first wave, I call it. They're hit hard and they've a split first wave. The season cut their wave and their second wave is the same size as their first. Italy, Belgium and a couple more. And then you have countries, Slovenia and one or two more, I think Croatia, who are first wave now. They had no first wave because the season didn't trigger. Do you know what I mean? And then you have um, no second wave in terms of mortality. And the UK and Scotland are in that group and Ireland. By the mortality figures, you couldn't call it a second wave phenomenon, you know, because it's not far enough can, out from... But you can if you look at the the COVID-related um, deaths, so the PCR-positive deaths. Ah, yeah, now, the, I, track, I track though that data daily. And, you know, I, I make sure that people understand that the daily deaths are reported deaths. They... they they span a multitude of days, and I've done mm. some, you know, decent analysis to show just how many days they do straddle to put some put some calm and put some perspective into those numbers. But those numbers, nonetheless, on a reported basis, are high, thousand plus. Now, uh, that if my memory serves me right, but those numbers sound similar to the numbers we were reporting back in March. 
They are. So the average person will look at that and say, you guys are smoking something. How can you bareface lie? Like, look at the data. It's there. It's in black and white. You talk about empirical data. There you go, Ivor and Steve. We have our second wave. Thank you very much. Yes. And the thing is, whatever about what happens in the future, those people will be 100% bona fide, fide, incorrect. And I'm not saying that as a, I believe my opinion, I don't respect your opinion to those people. By definition, they are incorrect because the all-cause excess mortality is the only measure you can use in a winter resurgence. And we flagged this in our letter to the Irish Times in August, myself and a couple of doctors. When we come into the winter, it will be very different than the epidemic because the initial epidemic, you're not testing that much. And the COVID deaths with positive PCR are in concordance with the actual excess deaths. England got a whacking in April. Ireland got a good drubbing in April in real mortality. And the COVID deaths roughly match up with the real excess death. But now in a winter resurgence, it's utterly mathematically different. So if you take the real excess death curve, and I did this in a two-minute video video the other day that explains it all, I'll send the link. If you take the real curve and you stretch it in PowerPoint so that the real death spike matches the COVID death spike from positive PCR back in April, you normalize it and you, you match them. Well, then the curve now for real death versus COVID death is now four times lower death. So people need to realize that in the real epidemic, the real excess deaths roughly lines up and it was tough. But now the real death is around four times out of sync. And four times is a big, a big number. So you can only look at excess death now. It's just the way it is. And you know, I'll give you an when example. You're, when you're talking about excess death, are you talking about against the five-year average or are you doing anything a little bit more fancy when you when you describe excess? Well, you can use a five-year average, but you can't use 19 because it was low, which means 20 should be higher simply to account for 19 being low. So to be more aged uh, and susceptible around. So 20 should be higher anyway. But if you compare against a stiff flu year, I think that's a fair comparison. And you have to be way out of whack with a stiff flu year, like 18. Way out of whack, because if it's anywhere in the envelope of a stiff flu year in excess death, and I mean anywhere in the envelope, then you can't claim a crisis because it's in the envelope of a real life Mm -hmm. period where we had no crisis and no one even knew about it. So come on, guys. You know, you got to be logical here, right? If we got, if we got 10,000 extra deaths in X year and no one took any notice and just accepted it was virus in winter and that happens and we get 20,000 this year and you say, oh my God, that's double, but double nothing. And I have no disrespect for the people who pass, but if we did nothing and accepted that as part of our culture and reality that it's the virus's fault and there's not much you can do, which is true, except for treatments like vitamin D and ivermectin, but they're not doing those anyway, but lockdown won't help. 
uh, double having done absolutely nothing is not the horror we we witness now. So do you know what I mean? And I think a really important way I tried to explain this to the lay person, and I'm going to try and say this really slowly and carefully because it is tricky. If there's a seasonal resurgence of SARS-CoV-2, which there is, and let's say it resurged in a big way, and hypothetically, let's say that pretty much over the next week or two, everyone was positive for SARS-CoV-2. Everyone. What people need to realize is that would mean, in reality, this is reality, if everyone was positive, even though you're actually... we don't have a massive problem, but everyone's positive in the PCR. That means that every hospitalization for the next few weeks is COVID-19, which is obviously screamingly untrue. Every death in the UK for the next four weeks is COVID-19 death. Everyone. Every ICU is COVID-19, the disease. So people need to think, if everyone was positive for PCR, Everyone in the UK would have COVID-19, every death, every hospitalization, every ICU, you know. And that's the example I give. It's like a, an Einstein thought experiment to let people realize how fraudulent these COVID-19 deaths are. Because SARS-CoV-2 positive, everyone could have it with no excess death and everyone could have it with big death. But the only measure you can use is the death versus prior bad flu seasons for that mm. reason. What, what makes it difficult, um, even for me, is when you look at the data and you look at the PCR positive deaths and you place that on the same graph as the, the total mortality. So you, you, cannot, you don't necessarily have to look at excess. You just look at the shape. You look at the shape of... COVID deaths versus total mortality deaths throughout the whole of 2020, bleeding into 2021. If you look at the ONS data, you'll see that they roughly align. So without much further consideration and get into some of the nuance here, and we should, you'd look at the the fact they match from a pattern perspective and you say, well, there you go then. It's the COVID deaths that are driving up the hump in excess mortality, slight as it is, but nonetheless, they match and yeah. therefore, there you go. There's that causality. You know, the correlation equals causality in that regard. I don't, I don't buy that. But that is what I think people will see. Yeah. I mean, even in my graphs, they say, look, they, they look the same, Steve. So therefore, one is causing the other. The question I then ask is, but are we, are we mischaracterizing this excess? And we know we are to some degree because we know we've lost... I think touching almost 38,000 people, 35 to 38,000 people so far from March to now have died in excess of normal levels at home that did not have COVID. Yes. Okay. Ex- so, in excess. So that's, you, you already take that off. And if, if you layer that in, the shape then starts to change. So yeah, I know you're, you're, biting, at, you're biting to get in, get in there on that. But talk, talk to me about how the, those graphs look the same and how can we not talk our way out of it, but describe it yes. elegantly and thoughtfully. Yes, and I can. And this is to the heart of the matter. So let's, for the listener, because we can't even show graphs here. So let's, for the listener, uh, go with a single day, right? Again, thought experiment. So on a single day uh, today, 
there's a thousand COVID-19 deaths with positive PCR. And let's say there's 400 uh, actual deaths over what you'd expect. And you could have in there 150 deaths that are the winter toll that's being taken on a population that's been locked down with lack of care uh, for so long. So there could be 250 real extra deaths that are largely driven by COVID. But remember we said there's a thousand deaths attributed to COVID. So the shape of the curve will match for two reasons. One is that COVID is a nasty disease and it's resurging in the winter. So of course it's going to contribute to the curve. So of course the curve will, it, will take some shape of the COVID curve. That's fine. Um, but it might be 250 directly from COVID out of the thousand you're claiming. And that's a 4x difference. So the curve will reflect the severity of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 disease in general. But the thing that's important is what are the actual excess? And the problem is, if you damage the population uh, really badly, which lockdowns have done and they're long running now, the winter is when you're going to see some real hurt. Now, beautifully from Joel and maybe your graphs, you could see from ONS that all summer we could see that animal, the blood on the hands of the lockdowners. We could see that all the excess deaths, very substantial in cardiac and cerebrovascular and, and all those things were in the home and other settings. Like you said, not, not COVID-19 during the summer. So we know that there's this big block of extra death. And what do you think is going to happen when you come into the winter with a population that's been damaged by lockdown and lack of care? What happens in the winter? Well, anyone who has any challenge, right, is going to get hurt in the winter. It's the nature of the season. So you're going to get all of that. And that's why I say 1,000 COVID deaths today, 400 are actually in the real data, and maybe 150 of those are happening relating to lockdown. You're left with 250. And people need to grasp that. COVID is driving mortality. The question is, how much? And is it a crisis, or is it just understandable for a really tough virus? And the data would say that back in April was a really big hit and everyone saw the curve. And now the mortality excess is very muted relatively. So we should be thankful that we passed through most of the impact already. We should be thankful that the excess mortality genuinely driven by COVID is relatively low compared to the real epidemic. We should be thankful that that's the case. But instead, no, we're, we're, we're thankful for masks and lockdowns. That's what we're thankful for. Which is a lie. Imagine if we didn't have either of those. <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's just a lie. So, in fairness, I'm 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 trying to talk about the philosophy. We should be thankful, but then to say it was due to masks and lockdowns is now a technical scientific claim, and we almost certainly, as we said earlier, know that that's a, a technical lie, and we have 26 published papers, and the latest one is from. Denmark, you know the mink issue? Yes. Just yeah. published last week, 
is the most amazing thing that I was actually hoping for but thought I'd never see was a natural experiment in hard lockdown versus none. And they did it in Denmark and they published last week. So there were 11 municipalities during that mink nonsense and infection rates were rising in the population. And what they did was they hard locked down seven municipalities. And I mean hard lockdown. And the other four were just left with the distancing generic. And what they showed was that they were rising at the same infection rate increase, all 11. The lockdowns went in on seven. The curves kept going, matched with the other four. They curled over together. They came down together. In other words, the hard lockdown in a direct compare and ecological experiment failed utterly. And the team were very careful in their wording. And they said, look, we know this is not intuitive. And we know that many people will be surprised. But this is the data. We controlled for the initial rate, the initial vector, the rate of increase. We controlled for everything you could. And we're more controlled than nearly anyone else who studied this. But it is what it is. And they then quote a series of references to papers like My26 saying there is a precedent and all of these analyses have strongly said that lockdown does not really have a positive effect. And now our ecological experiment, the first of its kind for SARS-CoV-2 and lockdown, says the same thing that they're saying. And multiply in the text, they invite people to come and look at their data. They acknowledge it's controversial and they invite people to come and look and tell them where they're wrong. I would say, and they know it, they're not wrong. So what's intuitive to all the people out there, and this is what's fooled the population, it's so intuitive that if you lock down, it's going to make things better. But most things in complex science, virology is certainly that, are not intuitive. They're counterintuitive. And that's why all of the best guys for 50 years of Western science on pandemic management culminated in the WHO October 2019 pandemic management guidelines. It's a big document. And in there, they unequivocally state, based on a half century of knowledge and science, that isolation of exposed individuals is not recommended based on the evidence. Right? That's it. Wow. They were correct. The only reason we did lockdowns was because China did them. And I know mm -hmm. people will find it hard and they'll say, oh, that's a Trump comment. I'm not talking about Trump. I'm not talking about being critical of China. I'm saying it is a fact of record that the only reason lockdowns came up in Italy when they panicked was directly because we copied China and the we w had a case study to, hmm? to work off. We had a case study to work from, you know, the only one, only place that had experienced this before us was China. And therefore that was, uh, you know, that was case law, right? We do what they've done. Yeah. Especially if they're seeing a positive effect. It would never happen though in law, because if you had 150 cases that unequivocally came to a conclusion based on, I don't know, you know, common law and, and case law and, and constitutional law, and suddenly one judge, right, 
an alcoholic judge, let's say, slaps the gavel and says, no, you're allowed to murder people if, if you were really angry at the time. Do you think that case would overturn all of our legal precedent? No, it wouldn't. No. It would be thrown out of court and the ruling would be reversed. But what happened here is China said, hey, we did lockdowns and they worked. And we all said, uh, oh, Jesus, oh, that's great. So we flushed 50 years of science down the toilet and literally copied China. Uh, Professor Michael Levitt in February clearly called out that it was untrue, that the curves had been slowing down from the first day of the epidemic rise. He saw mathematically they were self-slowing down, non-exponential from the first day, and they curled over. And he saw the same in Italy, independent of lockdown. And he's screeching it. No one would listen. So what was done was wrong. And now we are living it. You know, it is a tragedy. What I, what I find interesting about that is that you mentioned the who and you, you mentioned their pivot. And we know we've done they've done a couple of things very similar, right? We know that their guidance in June, which I believe still stands as it relates to masks and, and community masking, was effectively a document rather long. Um, it was, you know, a, a meta-analysis funded by them to look at all the data and their assessment was there is no evidence to prove that masking of the general population has an effect on respiratory virus transmission. They say that openly. You know, I bastardize it a little bit, but that's basically what they said. Mm. But in the same breath, in the same document, they said, but, you know, well, you know, go on it. You may as well do it anyway. And then they listed a few positive reasons about, you know, making people feel calm. And, you know, it was just all, it was all behavioral stuff and societal stuff none of it was you know scientific biological fact so they make that statement in june and then all of a sudden we pivot and then we start putting masks in our on our tubes in our public transport and then you know we, we know that how that story plays out so that's point one right so it was point one was they pivoted on the lockdown piece point two is with all the data in hand they 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 allow politically allow masking even though the evidence suggests it doesn't add any value and then the third thing, and this is actually the, you know, it happens before all of this, and this is the bit I, w- I want us to kind of spend just a little time on, is their case definition. So their case definition from the get-go has been effectively a PCR positive test. And that really is it. You know, I've looked at it most recently. They updated it on the 16th of December. It's the same. They've just included some opportunity to describe suspected or probable covid if they have antigen antigen testing, rapid fl- rapid flow, sorry, lateral flow rapid testing, um, but it, they change nothing in regard to confirmed case. Confirmed case out of those three suspected, probable, and confirmed is the only case definition where it doesn't include include symptoms. If you're suspected, you have to have symptoms. If you're probable, you need to have symptoms. If you're confirmed, you just need to have the test show positive. And I'm like, I'm screaming at my screen, going. What? <laughs> Why? Why drop the the symptoms in the the in the confirmed bucket when you need symptoms to lead up to that? It's, it's just most odd. So talk to me about this. Like, what's going on with case definition? Why now? Like, we, we we've done a year of this. Why can't they just go? Okay, right. We fully understand the virus. We've got tests that we we feel that we're comfortable with. Symptoms plus 
plus positive test, job done. I don't want to talk about anything other than that. If you want to do surveillance, go for it. But if you get a positive test without symptoms, it ain't in the data. It ain't part of the policy, um, you know, uh, defining. Like we need to differentiate between surveillance stuff that says I can find fragments of the the virus versus I have someone who's clearly symptomatic and struggling with this. I know it's about asymptomatic transmission and, you know, the bogeyman there. But talk to me why a year in we don't have symptoms as part of case definition that feeds into our reporting structure globally. Yeah, it seems to me, I don't want to get into conspiracy, but it seems to me that the game was utterly and totally rigged back in March. And the first thing that I was horrified by, and indeed all the doctors in the Irish group and doctors all over the world were horrified by, was the death certs. The WHO decided to tell everyone, and they all did it, like within 28 days of a positive PCR, which means nothing effectively to do with the death, if it's positive within 28 days, and the UK went in August to 60, I think mining for fear. But either way, it's COVID on the death cert. It's a COVID death. And that is insane. So when I saw that happening back in March, April, in America, in England, I wasn't even familiar with death certs. But I said, There's, that's insane. That means in a bad flu year, if we went around like maniacs testing everyone with highly sensitive PCR, then all the deaths of old people and sick people would all become flu or tons of them. That makes no sense. And uh, But they did it. So they did it way back. And like you say then, without symptoms, all the doctors tell me in Ireland, it is in breach of everything. You get a symptomatic person that has a malady and you can use as part of the diagnosis and your doctor's judgment, a test of various types, I guess you can also use PCR, to help you decide what's primarily driving it. Um, but that obviously has nothing to do with what they're doing. They're just saying any swing and dick, or you can walk in the door, get a test, and next minute he's a COVID patient. That's absurd. See, I, I'm, not, I'm not denying that people don't have symptoms. Like I, I know people, I know people who said, "Oh, I was feeling a bit rough. Got a test, came back positive. I've had COVID. Okay, all right. No, you, oh, I haven't. had this. I had, but but it, they may or may not. Like I, I don't need <laughs> to argue, argue whether they've had it or not. The point that I want to make there is that I'm not denying that people with symptoms aren't getting tested. What I'm struggling with, and what the population doesn't seem to be accepting, is that there are many, many, many tests which are being done on those that have no symptoms, healthcare workers, contact tracing, you know, um, some 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 um, businesses and, and sectors like that. And we're just about, as of yesterday, launching now a massive asymptomatic program. We're going to be using a lateral flow testing into, oh. into retail, into healthcare, doing it three times a week, Jobby. So I'm, I'm just, I'm struggling with this notion that people think they're not testing uh, people without symptoms because they clearly are and they're planning to do more so with the explicit statement within that um, that press release from the government that this will help us find more cases. And I'm like, of course, no shit. But <laughs> but what what we have here is, is us all falling for this asymptomatic transmission discussion. And as a result, every case is relevant, symptoms or not. And I struggle with that fundamentally, intuitively, scientifically. I struggle with that. But that seems to be what allows 
the reporting to stay the way it is globally because the WHO are not pulling back from this idea of can we just call a diseased person a diseased person if they're diseased? We just don't want to do that. We just want to call anyone with a positive test diseased. Yeah. They, they... Why, why, why can't they pivot? Why won't they pivot to something more appropriate and clinical? Well, it's like Goebbels, the biggest lie or, or the too big to fail concept. At this stage, they are literally drunk on this whole thing. And look how it's exploded out of control. But to them, it's not out of control. It's perfectly in line with their objectives and their raison d'etre. They've got a big epidemic and a pandemic, which makes them the leaders of the world. And a lot of other corporate people, organizations are very happy that this continues. So there's no incentive to start going back to logic now because they put in the illogical stuff you describe. They put it in under advisement. They put it in purposely illogical things. And now when the game is running, why would they go back and do something logical? And they added in, it was almost post hoc. They, they bolted on pieces to keep this thing as chaotic as possible all the way. So the masks were put in and a UK journalist pressed the WHO spokesperson and the person admitted that it was more a political decision and that they were not saying there needs to be masking because it's not in their guidelines 2019 either, right? So they covered themselves and said, well, no, we didn't. That was more political. So they're kind of blaming the governments. So why did that happen? I mean, you could understand advising it if the governments all said, oh, yeah, yeah, wear masks, guys, because, you know, I know it's middle of the summer and nothing's happening and we're grand until next winter. But listen, wear them anyway. Right. That's fair enough. But within two weeks, all the countries brought in laws with fines and imprisonment and enforcement in the middle of the summer. So, you know, the problem is, Steve, there's so much here that's not logical that okay, this is just another thing that makes no sense, but it's a long line of them. The WHO on the 28th of July came out with a bulletin. They weren't asked. No one pressed them. They came out with a bulletin saying SARS-CoV-2 is not seasonal. It is not like the flu. It's not seasonal. They actually went out of their way wow. to tell people, and I have the announcement here, they went out of their way to expressly tell people something that was not only scientifically completely untrue, but it conflicted with all the data that was right in front of our faces. And still they did it. So the question is why? Uh, why did they want the asymptomatic? Well, there's one reason. Because their chief scientific officer, that lady, uh, you know, uh, that you would be familiar with, but she's gone yeah, now. I, yeah, I forgot, I forgot her name, but I know the one yeah. you're talking about. She came out and said truthfully to a reporter's question, she made a big mistake. She told the truth. I know that sounds rich, mm -hmm. but it's true. She was asked as their chief technical officer and lead, who had been giving updates every few days, a uh, good-looking uh, lady and uh, very articulate, and she was asked by a reporter, but what about asymptomatic spread? Is that, is that really a thing? And she answered articulately and said, well, you know, the studies we have at the moment, it would appear not. And of course, we'll be doing more work, but all of the initial data suggests that it's not really a thing, and blah, 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 and uh, moved on. There was a retraction that evening or the next morning. CNN took down the video, and WHO said, oh, no, 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 uh, it, asymptomatic spread, yeah, big deal. And the reason was they'd already 
decided to lock down everyone. And if you lock down whole societies, you're making a scientific and technical statement. And they did it back in March. You're saying that asymptomatic people are a big driver of this problem. Because if only symptomatic people were, they never would have locked down anyone, even in March. Mm. So they realized that what she said truthfully undermined the whole game. Right. So even though she was correct, and we have the studies now to prove it, they realized politically, we can't let her say that. Because if that gets around, then people will say, well, hold on a minute. That means all the asymptomatic people don't need to lock down. But hold on a minute. That means nearly no one needs to lock down. But hold on a minute. That means October 19 guidelines from the WHO were correct all along. And why the hell do we listen to China? Do you see the problem? So this thing is seethingly political. And all of these decisions and moves are all vastly more connected to strategy, you know, and, and political aspects of managing the people, vastly more connected to that than any scientific justification. And we know that. So, And that, and that unfortunately, is the bit that people don't really want to confront. They don't want to confront that there are motives that sit outside of getting a hold of a, a respiratory virus that's running havoc around the globe. People don't want to accept that there could be some opportunism here and maybe lots of opportunism, right, around restructuring economies, restructuring um, some, con- you know, adding additional controls to, you know, movement and freedom, um, maybe moving towards something that's a bit more socialist and or communist in nature, looking to compete with China. Like, you know, People don't want to accept that that could play into people's decisions. I'm not close enough to any political leader to know if that's how they think. But there is enough circumstantial evidence to say that people are singing off a very similar hymn sheet. Um, we don't need to go into the political mm. wares and what, all, that, all that kind of stuff. But it, the political aspect of it seems very strong to me. I think the evidence to support the decision sounds weak, but in the eyes of the majority, they get witty, they get valance, they get you know the head of the NHS, they get various other people on in these press briefings. Uh, Van Tam, with his head teacher-like condescending tones, mm. and tell us that they're right, and this is really, really serious. And guys, you you have to you have to take it seriously. You have to pretend you've got COVID. It's the only way out of this. I'm screaming at the at the TV when I see these things. Um, three other questions, and I think we call it a day. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how big the, the, they are for you. Hopefully they won't be too big. Huh. Hospital burden. So yeah. that's the I mentioned the NHS and how the, the NHS is struggling. We had Dr. Claire Craig on just last, and she spoke about bed flow management and that being the principal driver for the pressure that we're seeing in hospitals. Do you agree? Or do you see that actually there is a there is a burden put upon, upon us right now, which is directly related to the virus? Um, An unseasonal burden. Oh, unsee- I think, again, I haven't got too much into that. I've been trying to get the those those data, um, but Cray or Claire would be closer to it, certainly. In Ireland, I'm pretty close to because we have a large group of doctors and a lot of people on the inside. So I think the system is under pressure, um, but 
not out of bounds with a bad flu year. I mean, in Ireland, we had, uh, we're very like England, by the way, at the moment, and massive cases and hospital pressures and very, very analogous uh, because the seasonal trigger happened and it happened both Ireland and England together. It's nothing to do with lockdowns. We know that. So uh, Ireland had 580 trolleys, I think, in 2018, people out in corridors. They were that full. And they had a full hospital system, fully staffed with no distancing. And they had 580 trolleys. And the newspapers for the last six, seven years, every year there's big newspaper front pages saying Ireland's in crisis, flu season, winter, 500 trolleys, disaster. That's a reality. This year we have 150 trolleys. And sure, we have loads of people in there. But the problem is there's nearly 4,000 staff at home, not because they have symptoms. They got a positive test. And I've been informed that they're testing around the clock on all staff. And if you have a population where SARS-CoV-2 seasonally, regionally triggers, like we do, they're talking up to 15 or 20% positives in the testing and your repeat testing. You know, everyone who gets a positive test, even if it's irrelevant, they all go home for two weeks to watch Netflix. So you've got a hospital system that's under pressure, probably not dissimilar from a bad flu season, But this year, everything's distanced. Everything is chaotic because you've moved apart beds and you have all these systems in and half your staff are home, you know, on a holiday because they got a positive PCR. So it's not to say that the whole thing is is crazy, but, but if you factor in all of that and you try and triangulate and interpolate, it seems like a bad flu season. But it's way worse because of the factors I, I just told you. And I don't think they're warranted. Um, so what do you do? And I will say another thing, Steve, that's so important. People have to sit down and think. We have governments, experts and authorities that have been so wrong, and we touched on a lot of it. They've been vastly more wrong than we in the minority were wrong. Everyone gets something wrong. We're kind of 80-20 right on seasonality, dormancy, surges, predictions, overall impact, lockdowns don't work. We're around 80% right plus, and they're around 80% wrong. So we're way ahead. But people need to think. The authorities all summer threatened us with Spanish flu-like second waves. And they threatened us with those second waves imminent. You got a mask in July because the wave could come tomorrow. We know that's bullshit. We know it is, but they did it. So they threatened for six months through the summer, right up to winter, when you do get the resurgence, they threatened us with these biblical waves. How come, this is the million dollar question, did all those people telling us we're all going to be in a shocking state imminently, how come they didn't do a single thing in six months to prepare the system for the terror that they were threatening us with. How is that possible? And I say actually When you say the system, what do you mean by the system? A healthcare system? Oh, the healthcare system. Yeah, because they have no cure. They have no vaccine. So the obvious thing to do is what they kind of did in March, April, in fairness, nightingales and staff, rota, whatever. They actually did it in the real threat when they weren't sure it was going to happen. And they didn't use the capacity. Right, so go figure. Then all summer, they threaten us with an even bigger catastrophe 
and get us all masked, mandatory, and all this other stuff. But they don't do a single thing. They don't even do what they did for the real first epidemic. They did nothing. And I know, Steve, some people will say, oh, well, they did, or it's hard to train staff. It's hard to train staff. You're telling me you couldn't pull in, right? In private industry, you could do this in your sleep. We've done it. You bring in paramedics, you bring in ambulance people, you bring in people with any medical knowledge, and you rapid train them over the summer in ICU aspects, and then you make sure that your ICU trained people, even if half of them are off, can easily manage the new auxiliary staffing. This is a no-brainer. Any corporate manufacturer could do this in their sleep in four months, right? Emergency order, rapid training. We know in four or five months we're going to hit the winter. It's going to be tough probably. Um, We want an extra few nightingales and we want the staff that can run them, even if 30% of the staff have the problem. This is buttons. This is simple. A, a, A person who's mentally impaired could have prepared all summer for a winter resurgence, and they did nothing. Now, I know I'm getting angry here, but it just infuriates me that the people threatening us with apocalyptic second waves and masking us and controlling and taking away all our rights based on the horror to come didn't do a single thing to prepare for it. I mean, I wonder, did they know we would only get a normal seasonal resurgence like a severe flu year? And therefore, they didn't want capacity and staff because then it would be too manageable and there'd be no crisis. I know that's a stretch, but I mean, what's in their heads, these people? What's it go- yeah. what, what was going uh, on I- in their heads all summer to do nothing and now to have a mess which they own and turn back and blame us? I mean, mm. it's disgusting. No, it is. It is, and we we know the nightingales weren't used, and yeah. you know they 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 seem to rather use the nightingales for mass vaccination centres, as you know the conspiracy theorists were outlaying you know back in the summer, than actually use them for their you know their intended purpose. It, it, it all smacks of oh, <laughs> conspiracy. Sounds too strong, but um, some you know intent intent to create continued hysteria yeah um, malice of as, 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 as much as that's hard to stomach for most people it, it I, I struggle to see the alternative because as you say we could have we could have been better prepared if we felt confident we were going to see a problem right we'll talk about this new variant i, I don't want to go into details we don't need to the details yeah. it's just like do you feel this variant thing that there's a there's a phenotype out there that's creating what we're seeing on the testing and therefore what's what's driving a lot of the panic right now. Do you buy that? Okay. And I'm going to qualify this because I'll, I'll be less certain because I haven't really spent the time on it. Um, but Professor, I think it's Bolano or something like French EUX, a really good guy who's been very balanced since the start on Twitter uh, and an absolute expert. I know that I was seeing his reports that studies have shown it's not really more transmissible. And this is a week or two ago. And I know that the 70% more transmissible came out of the mendacious cesspool that is Imperial College. And I'm going to use my words carefully there. Those people have a lot to answer for. They modeled it as 70% more. That's what Whitty was saying. Whitty wasn't saying they looked and found out, Jesus, it's 70% more transmissible. Look, it was modeling. 
from Imperial College. Cherchez la femme, right? Here we go. So my impression is that the evidence scientifically that's robust suggests, I'm pretty sure for this variant, but I know there are lots of studies on different variants, so I couldn't be 100% sure. But I'll check afterwards. Maybe we'll put in an end note on this. But that there is not good evidence for transmissibility exceptionally higher or certainly virulence. In fact, I've seen studies claiming that this is maybe less virulent, may spread more and be less virulent. So the scientific state of play on this is the assumption has to be made that this is not really different. There are 2,000 variants since this thing started in March, of which this is one. The science seems to say it's not a major difference. And it looks like political expediency to find another, you know, bogeyman to make this seem more urgent and crazy. Because if there wasn't a variant, they would have had to acknowledge, oh, it's seasonally resurged now rapidly based on nature, not our lockdown. And they don't want to say that because a sudden rise that you can't tie to any of their interventions means the virus is in control, which essentially it is, of course, we know that. And they don't really like that. They like the do narrative. You believe, do you believe that is what we're seeing? That well, the, the, the explosion in cases is a direct correlation to um, prevalence? Is, 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 do you feel comfortable to say, I don't like the test, but either I don't like the test in the summer and I you know, extrapolate out that or I'm, I'm saying it performs differently depending on the season. You know, we have to have oh. a level of consistency here, right? So if you look at the test and its performance in summer and now you look at the test and its performance through autumn into winter, it's producing on a positivity level more cases. So how do we describe that? Do we describe that as a test as flawed as it is, is finding more stuff? Yeah, and that's where I think it's crucial for the listener to watch my two-minute, 19-second video on Twitter, which I put out to answer all those questions. So I'll send that on, but essentially I did three zones. So there's the epidemic zone in April where the PCR is in concordance with the actual death, and it's a reasonable measure, and the curves agree. You've then got the summer, right, where even though you drop the lockdowns, effectively nothing happens in death or impact, even when you pack millions of people into Cornwall. You've got loads of cases in PCR, but there's no death or ICU and nothing's happening. So the authorities are wondering what to do to stoke up fear. So they do a case-demic. They focus exclusively on cases. And that's where the PCR is complete BS because the virus is around, but it's not triggered and nothing's happening. And the third phase is the winter resurgence. And that's where the PCR, the virus genuinely rises. And because it's this season, it does have impacts. And now you've got PCR being more relevant, but unfortunately, as we said, four times over counting. But it's more relevant than the case-demic in the summer, where it was utterly disconnected from death or suffering. Now it is connected, but it's... It, the results are very dangerous because they're magnifying. And like I said, if everyone in the winter resurgence all had a positive PCR because the virus genuinely triggered, which it did, which it is, then every death would be COVID and every hospital bed would be COVID, which is absurd. So we're in the middle of between reality and absurdity in this winter resurgence. 
but the video really explains it. But you're right. Okay. The PCR is context dependent. In a real epidemic, it's got value. In a case-demic, which is all summer in Northern Europe, it's dangerously misleading and it's worthless. And then in a winter resurgence, it kind of becomes useful again, but not in the way they're using it, you know, because now ICU and mortality excess is the real measure. The PCR is only a vague guide. So that's kind okay. of in a nutshell. Last question then. And this is the one which is that, that the bit of the million dollar question. Uh, and we may be wrong on this and we'll find out in a month's time or two months time. We yeah. are, if you if you track the ONS data, seasonally, it peaks throughout the whole year. It peaks around about mid-January. Now, there's there's a, um, a bit of a, it's not an authentic peak. It's, it's still kind of picking out the, you know, the, the bank holidays and, and Christmas, New Year. But it peaks fairly sharply, kind of the third week in to January. And then you see it drop quite substantially and then kind of just create that kind of undulation into August where then it starts to rise again. So if we go in by the data, historical data, we should expect to see all-cause mortality and hopefully therefore excess mortality start to turn a corner in the next couple of weeks of ONS data. On top of that, we have the push for vaccines. On top of that, we are on lockdown, in lockdown, and we've got these other measures, you know, extra testing and so forth. The question is, what, and this is a cynical question, but how does a government engineer itself out of hysteria? We assumed they might do that in May when we spoke last. <laughs> Clearly, that wasn't the goal. And I'm not sure if it's going to be the goal this year. But if the goal is to say vaccines are a success, we want to, we want to get up on stage and say, we were right. The vaccines are working. The lockdown's working. Things are on, on path to you know, a, a better, better life shortly. What would they do? Because my gut says if they carry on PCR testing the way it currently is, where one of the genes are knocked out because of this, because of this uh, variant, uh, effectively only kind of evaluating two of the three genes, combined with that, they're now trying to dr drop in loads of lateral flow testing, which will then spin up more PCR testing on the back end. And we're scaling PCR testing to you know, eye-watering levels of you know, six, 700,000 per day across the UK. But I don't, I, it feels like this case-demic cannot end, but they're going to want it to end because the vaccines have got to be a success. And we can't keep locking down throughout spring and summer. So what are the dials do you anticipate? And this is, again, cynical and a bit kind of like prophetic in nature. But what do you think the dials will be? Volume of testing, type of testing, testing um, setup, whether it be amplification cycles, genes being tested, whatever. What are going to be the dials that allow the story to un unfold such that lockdowns, masking and vaccines have been a success throughout the winter? Right. Well, I tell you exactly what I do. Um, that's all I can say. Now, it happens to mirror exactly what they're doing. So you can take that as you will. As a corporate guy, if I found myself in this kind of mess and I wanted to come out of it looking okay, what I'd do is... If I knew that the lockdowns were BS and I'd caused enormous suffering and death uh, for nothing, what I'd do is I'd watch the curves with my knowledge of seasonality 
and viral triggering and patterns, I'd watch the curves and make sure I tried to get a lockdown in at roughly the right point where afterwards, where the curve inevitably rose and fell, I could claim my lockdown had something to do with that. That's exactly Check. what they're doing in Ireland and England. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I would um, rack up the case numbers during the problem where I want people most terrified. That would involve talking about strains, doing a ton of testing, misattributing as many deaths as possible, extending out to 60 days from a test like the UK did back in August from 28, which was already kind of crazy. And I, I do all that. that way around, though. I think, they, I think they went from 60 to 28. Uh, oh, I'm... someone sent me the current one and it's up to 60 and then it can be over 60 or no test in the oh. uh, physician's I, I judgment. Haven't, I'm going to double check that and oh, confirm yeah. it for our audience. But I know in August they said we're going to stop doing 60. We will report on it, but the official death toll is only going to be on up to 28 days. I don't know oh. if they've changed okay. since. Yeah, well, to be honest... 28 is plenty for my corporate role yeah. that we're talking about here. So 60 was just absurd. So that's okay. fair enough. Okay. So I do that. And then I'd start thinking ahead for when the seasonal surge, which is driven by the virus uh, that we're in, when do I think it'll come down? And the best guess I could make is it'll subside later in January and come down and is relatively unlikely to have an impactful uh another resurgence. Now it can happen. We know in bad flu season, sometimes you get a big peak in November and then you get a big peak in Jan in January and all kinds of patterns. But sometimes they are truly different viruses like influenza A kicks your ass in November. Uh, B stays non-activated in deference to A. And then when A is passed, B steps up. Um, but in this case, it's one broad virus. So I'm guessing it'll curl over in January. And therefore, they're intending, and they'll have to make this judgment like I would have to, we're bringing in the vaccine, so we want the problem to effectively go away. Now, nature's going to make it go away anyway. We just need to decide when that might be, and we're guessing. So what I'd do as well is I'd start after suppressing vitamin D and metabolic health. That's very important for aged health. I'd start talking about that now and actually releasing the suppression and start getting people to go ahead and take vitamin D. Now, as far as I'm aware, the UK, after nine months of silence, um, within a week or two ago, they're now bringing in a program of vitamin D for the elderly. They so that, that's exactly yeah. what I'd do. So I'd start gearing up to take advantage of nature where the susceptible in this seasonal resurgence uh, are going to pass People are going to get better. We're going to have way more herd immunity. The curve's going to come down. And I want to attribute that to the vaccine, which is a growing percentage in the population. So give them well, vitamin the D. Hmm? Are we going to continue to scale testing? Are we going to still see testing scale up? Uh, you know, 800, nine, oh, 900, mm. uh, you know, a million tests per day. Mm. You know, what are you going to do? Because if, if we keep scaling the testing, I can't see this disappear. I can see the prevalence drop and therefore positivity drop. But cases are going to continue to be very prevalent based on reported cases if we're scaling as high as we are. Yeah. So would you do anything on the, the testing, whether it be the setup of the test, the type of test, or the volume of the test? Right. What, what I do is right now, when, when you're in the middle of the, the heat, I'd, I'd pile on testing. I'd pile it on like no tomorrow, you know, because 
on top of the hospital overloading, piling on testing creates even more atmosphere of, of madness. So I would, but I'd be get, re getting ready as soon as the curve turns and when the vaccine percentage gets high enough uh, and you're beginning to bank your story, I'd begin to pull it down. And the story would be, the meds are working now. Things are looking better. We can back off on the testing. And you could, of course, say, you know what? The WHO a couple of weeks ago came out with a bulletin warning about the cycle count. So you could say, you know what? We might start reducing the cycle count now. And you could start using rapid antigen, which would lower the appearance of the problem and make things more manageable. They won't do which it up till now, but you can start doing it when the curves yeah. are going your way. So I'd say that the policy, sadly, is revolving around the curves and kind of gaming nature and guessing where they're going rather than genuinely trying to help people. Um, and testament to that is the point we made that's crucial, that authorities who wanted to minimize the problem would have spent six months for God's sake, we went to the moon in 1968. Are you telling me in six months with the modern infrastructure we have and technology, we couldn't have had the hospital singing in spite of the challenge? Of course they could, but they didn't. So they'll spend all the money and a hundred times more in lockdowns, but they won't spend any in actually doing what was the bloody obvious thing to do, uh, which was to get the healthcare system ready. Yeah, I think that's, that's that's a good kind of closing point to our discussion. Either I, I I agree with you. I think there is going to be. Uh, I think we are engineering our response to the natural seasonal curves of mortality. That's incredibly cynical of me, but so far we seem to have done a great job of doing exactly that. Um, I'm most interested in what they're going to do with the testing because right here, right now, this is inescapable but we're going to need to have some respite i think they're going to acknowledge that everyone's tiring of this they're going to need to find a way out and the vaccines are their stories they're going to have to do something with testing either change the genes they test for change the volume of testing change the cycle threshold pivot away from um, pcr and spend more time on on lateral flow hey maybe even change the case definition a bit i think that would be too far a reach to actually introduce mm, symptoms once big. again. But they're going to have to do something. Otherwise, the vaccine story is not going to be as victorious as they would like it to be. Let's see. Let's watch this space. We're only speculating. We'll find out in the next couple of months, I guess. So, Ivo, this has been fantastic. Thank you for going philosophical, emotional, and, um, you know, just hitting the hard questions because I'm challenging you. I'm challenging you and me to make sure we're honest and make mm. sure that we're having a conversation that people can relate to because they're struggling with the dissonance. You know, not necessarily struggling with what they believe, but they're, they're, they're struggling to continue to support it when the evidence starts to suggest that they might be wrong. And how do they navigate this mess that we're in because there's so much conflicting information and headlines. So thank you for doing that today. That was great. Um, I know you've been busy over the few months. You've done a few little side projects what do people need to know about you as they click off the mics now? Where do they need to go next? Check you out a little bit more or, or watch stuff that you've created. Oh, well, great. Thanks, Steve. No, it was it was good to do a non-totally 
technical discussion and it's very important the questions you brought up and I'm delighted I was cold called and I didn't actually realize because it makes them more authentic, which is always good. Uh, not that I would be twisting things otherwise, but you know, cold call is good. Uh, so I'd say Google my name or, or DuckDuckGo or whatever, and you'll hit the YouTube and you'll hit the Twitter and, and all that stuff. And the YouTube has interviews with all professors, experts, and my own data analysis. And that's where a lot of what we talked about will come out. And um, absolutely look out for the uh, devious ones who will be, uh, you know, air quotes, debunking and trying to find the slightest frisson of where I was incorrect. And then they will go after that like hounds, which they are. But they're forgetting the crucial thing. We on our side, Barrington, all the groups around the world were overwhelmingly correct on all our analyses. And pretty damn good with our predictions too, which are nearly impossible. And they were overwhelmingly incorrect on all the stuff we discussed. So the detractors can find one or two things where we got it wrong. And I say, get out and walk. Okay. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I will link to your YouTube, your website, and your Twitter that I know you're active in. Um, of course, when you drop your um, movie... Is, is, that, is that out yet, the documentary, or is that still in works? Oh, that's in the works. Uh, thanks to everyone who supports us. We exceeded Kickstarter and a lot of work in it because, you know, we've got an animation company and that's hilariously complex in movies. Most yeah. of these documentaries do not have professional animation like, you know, CGI, but we've decided we're going for gold. And it, it, nice. between that and all the other work and the on-location shooting we did and... The next couple of months are going to be busy putting this all together and at the best it, it can be. And it'll all be straight up honest. We'll have the advantage of knowing everything that happened. Um, but also it, it's good that largely everything came out as we predicted, largely. Uh, and that's good because if everything went completely the opposite of what you thought was going to happen, it, it, it would make it more difficult, obviously. We'd reflect yeah. the reality, but it's good that it, it's all gone the way we expected, and that's probably good for society as well. Uh, because and we can expect that to be out when roughly. Oh, I know it's a look, we were talking. Question. We were talking about March and the Kickstarter, but if we have to push it out a little to get it right, we will. But we're still aiming for that kind of, you know, sometime in March period. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Well, um, as soon as I have that that link. I'll make sure we'll sh I'll share to our audiences as well. So, Ivan, thank you so much for today. I'll let you get back to your family. Uh, fingers crossed that uh, this crusade um, pans out over the coming months. Keep in touch. And, um, yeah, all the best, my friend. All the best. You too. We'll be coming back to this. Thanks, Steve. Bye now. <laughs> Absolutely. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please. And write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best Journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. 
And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>